This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. So today we're going to continue our series this morning on prophets and prophecy. And uh, this morning we're going to do so by focusing on really what is one of the most popular spiritual subjects within evangelicalism today, and that is this issue called the rapture. And I wonder, uh, even as we start here this morning, how many of you maybe in the last year or two have read a book, something like uh, the series that Tim LaHaye does on Left Behind or something else, concerning how this theological perspective might unfold in our future. How many of you read a book? Let's just see. Wow. Look at there. All over the auditorium, people have read about that. And I know that I've looked on the bestseller list the last, oh, 10 or 12 weeks. And LaHaye's books are in the top 10 bestsellers in the nation. Because it seems that everyone, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, knows something about this prophetic event that's coming up that we know is the rapture. In fact, it may be Christianity's most talked about doctrine today. What I'd like to do this morning is to put a historical context around this issue called the rapture. This is kind of a study message this morning, so we're going to put on our theological hats today and put a historical context around it. We've been out of this uh, series in Daniel for a few weeks because of... Uh, Easter, so it would probably be good for us to do that anyway. But uh, from a theological perspective, as we look through the book of Daniel, Daniel kind of paints history from a Jewish perspective as he sees human history unfolding. I have it in your outlines, and I want to put it here on the uh, overhead so you can see kind of this historical context. It's very important that we, we look at this. When Daniel lays this out, he sees these, these moments of human history as it unfolds. And we could label it kind of as follows. We could see this background as being before Christ, because Daniel sees an epic before Christ. Now, if you're in the university today, we don't do B.C. anymore. We do B.C.E. before the common era, because we just can't bring ourselves today to acknowledge Christ. But we're going to do it here this morning. Things before the cross as being before Christ, and in human history turned on His life and death, His crucifixion and resurrection, which Daniel, in a cloudy way, could kind of see as he spoke of the Messiah being cut off in Daniel 9. Then he sees this great epoch of time after that, after Christ, and then he sees a small period of time right at the end that we'll talk about here in a moment. That's why there's that last little circle. And then he sees the second coming of Christ when all of human history will come to a crescendo, a catastrophic climax, if you will. Now what we've seen as we've looked into the book of Daniel is that Daniel had two dreams in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. They were the same dream from two different perspectives. First of all, he had this dream of this great statue. Okay, This great statue appears to him, and as he sees this great statue, he he, he sees this statue formed in these different metals, a head of gold, a, a chest of silver, uh, loins of brass, and then legs of iron that split into two, and then finally it comes out at the very bottom of these ten toes of iron and clay. And he sees this, and he's awed by it, and he speaks to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he actually tells the king that you're the top part of this great figure, this awesome uh, statue. You're the head of gold. So right from the very beginning, we understand that this, this figure represents certain major empires. But we see it from man's perspective, and as we see it from man's perspective, it's awesome. It's this incredible thing that man honors today, and that's power. When you get to Daniel chapter 7, though, the images change because you go from this great figure broken down into four parts to these great beasts. And then we get to see the last beast that kind of scares Daniel to death. It's this incredible figure that's kind of a combination of a lion, leopard, bear, and all these things. And he has seven heads and he has ten horns. And Daniel's told in this prophetic image that though man sees this, these, these great empires from a statue perspective where they honor man and bow down to man, 
God sees these same empires not from a human perspective, but from a spiritual perspective. And those empires are not honorable, they're monstrous. They're empires that are used to judge and to discipline and to bring punishment and wrath. But they also shape history. And in particular, they shape Israel's history, but they also shape the history and destiny of the world, generally speaking. And then as you go on into Daniel chapter 8, he begins to help us understand who these empires are. And I've already mentioned those, but here's how these empires break down. This statue, these monsters break down into four nations. Those four nations are the original nation that Daniel prophesied under Babylon. Then later on, he could foresee in the future another empire, the empire of silver being Medo-Persia. Then the empire of brass being the empire of Greece. And then later on, this great empire of iron that is the very focus of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, being this empire that seemed to last forever, though it had two parts. It had a part in which it was in the time of Jesus Christ the Messiah, we saw that, but it also spilled over into a latter time, a revived kind of Roman empire. We saw it as Rome of the past and then this great kind of separation. And the reason that separation breaks down into these two parts is because I think Daniel could even prophesy through the angel that it had an east and west empire, and we know it had an east and west empire. And then rather than that empire ever being conquered, then it broke down like on your outline into all these little nation states, feudal states, and finally nation states like England and Spain and Rome and Greece and those kind of things. But what Daniel saw in his vision is that ultimately those nation states would somehow be shaped and formed to where they came back together into another world empire. We, just for lack of designation, we called it revived Rome. And in this revived Roman Empire, they would become the dominant force of the world and that would be one of the signals that we were moving into the final epoch of the history of earth. And then all that's left is a small time period in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then my last message in Daniel, Daniel 9, we learned that there were 70 weeks that were decreed for the nation of Israel. We learned that a week was seven years, so 490 years have been given to the nation of Israel through Daniel's prophetic visions. 483 of those years was apportioned from the time a decree was given to restore Jerusalem until the time Messiah came and was cut off. Now, as I mentioned in the last message, we know when that time of the decree that was given to go and rebuild Jerusalem. It was given under a future king, King Artaxerxes of Medo-Persia. That's why you have that timeline starting there. And from that time till the time Messiah was cut off was 69 of the 70 weeks, or 483 years. And we showed, hopefully you were amazed at seeing how those 483 years break down and actually fall at the time of Jesus Christ. That was an exciting time clock that was given to Daniel. But Daniel was also told that one week would remain. And this one week would, in a sense, go on hold. It would wait. It would be in the future. He didn't know where it would occur in the future. He just knew it would occur sometimes towards the end of human history. And this 70th week, or this seven-year period of time, would be a time in which Antichrist would arise, Israel would again be a nation, and then in this process, all those events would bring about in this last week Israel's restoration, but also the end of human history as we know it. That last week would begin, Daniel told us in Daniel 9, as a time of peace, at least promised peace by the Antichrist and that world ruler that we spoke about, but that that peace would unravel towards the end and it would bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now what we want to focus on this morning is that last period of time up there that last week, that last seven-year period of time that from time to time, if you read books and things like that, is called the time of the Great Tribulation because the rapture fits into those things. Now around that last week, Daniel, and not just Daniel, but other prophets, speak of a number of key events. I just want to rehearse those key events for us. It said around that 70th week, Israel will be reborn as a nation after 2,000 years of disbursement. And we have had the 
awesome privilege, if you will, of actually seeing that come about. No one ever expected Israel to ever become a nation. Not in 1000 AD, not in 1500 AD, even in the first part of the 20th century. The idea that someone would suggest that the people, the Jewish people, would once again be reformed as a nation was unthinkable. And yet we've seen it. We see our human events turn so quickly. Also, we learned that one of the key events was that the temple would be rebuilt in that time period, around that 70th week. We learned that there would be, as we've already spoken about, a world empire. Uh, an empire, again, that would control, really, the destiny of the whole world. And we've called it the revived Roman Empire because it is situated in that arena that Rome once reigned in. We also learned that there would be the rise of this figure, this hideous figure called Antichrist. And it would be Antichrist who would be the negotiator between this revived Roman Empire and its ruler and Israel. He would bring them together in an unholy alliance. And that through his negotiations, he would lead the nation of Israel into a peace pact with this world empire thinking that it would bring peace and safety when in reality it will bring utter ruin. And then finally, around the 70th week is this doctrine that we call the rapture of the church. <clears throat> now the reason I say that because I want you to see that the rapture relates from a historical context to this last week in human history. And it's a week that ends with Jesus' second coming. And so the question is, this morning, well, what is the rapture? And we want to get a good understanding of that because there's so much said about it today and unfortunately, so much that's exaggerated about it today. So we just want to get some perspectives because we want to be a people of the book and a people of the Word. And when we speak, we want to speak sound doctrine, not exaggerated doctrine. You know, theologically speaking, the rapture, and I'm going to just quote from a theological dictionary. The word rapture is derived from the Latin word rapio, which means to snatch up, it means to seize, it means to remove. It speaks specifically to God removing His church from this earth through a supernatural translation, a supernatural being caught up in the air, out of, most people think, the tribulation, to meet Jesus Christ in the clouds. Now that is kind of the theological definition of that. The rapture experience itself is clearly taught in the Bible. Though it's an irony to me to know and to let you know, at least some of you this may be surprised, that the word rapture, if you were going to take the word rapture and look it up in your Bible, you won't find it. As much as the church speaks so casually of the term rapture, there is no word in the Bible that you can find that says rapture. It's not found there. And so that may be a surprise to you, but here's what I want you to know. The experience that we coined that term to, rapture, is found in the Bible. So for instance, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This We'll just put it up on the screen. You can turn there in the Bible. We'll, we'll move kind of quickly here. But here's what Paul, in speaking to the people of Thessalonica said, and this is where we begin to see this rapture experience. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who fall asleep, that is, those who've died. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. In other words, they'll come up out of the ground. And then we who are alive at that point, at that coming, and remain we shall be, and here's the key word, caught up together in the clouds with those people who've died before us to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now that word caught up in the Greek is not rapture. It's a different Greek word. But it expresses this rapture experience. Same way in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the way it says it in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And it really is a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Translated is kind of the, the sense. It, it goes through this incredible metamorphosis in a moment. 
in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, there's the trumpet again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, those who are dead will be raised, but also us who remain alive, we shall all change in that moment. Now those are just two statements to, to help you understand that the rapture is as orthodox a Christian doctrine as is the resurrection or the second coming. Now in a lot of churches today, the reason I say this is because in a lot of churches today they kind of laugh at the rapture. They mock it as if it's some quirky, kooky idea that right-wingers came up with. They'll celebrate the resurrection, but they think of the rapture as something kind of strange or weird. But the, but the fact is, is that the rapture is not in any question in human history. If you go all the way back to the early church fathers, they thought of the rapture as a real, legitimate experience that human history comes to a climax, and as it comes to a climax, there's this supernatural moment where miracles once again become evident to all. And the greatest of those miracles is the rising of the church, the people of God, to meet Jesus Christ in this great cataclysmic spiritual moment that brings human history to a close. And we call it the rapture. So this doctrine is not under any question when it comes to Orthodox Christianity historically. Every church of every denomination has believed that throughout human history, except those who move into heresy or apostasy. But now here's the point. The real point this morning for us is not the question of whether the rapture is a legitimate Christian doctrine, but the timing of the rapture. Because the timing of the rapture is everything when it comes to the rapture experience itself. Many here this morning, including myself, have been taught, of course, that um, the rapture will occur before this great tribulation. And I'm going to use this little diagram behind me because I want it to stay up here so you can see it. So we would see that as occurring uh, right here. Here's the seven-year period that we call the tribulation. And so we call this the pre-trib rapture. How many of you have heard that and experienced that and read about that? Okay. The reason theologians of this stripe put the rapture here is because they see the purpose of the tribulation is not for the church. They see the purpose of the tribulation is for two things. First of all, it's to judge the unbelieving nations of the world at the end of human history. And secondly, that rapture is, I mean, uh, that tribulation period is to bring about a desperateness in the people of Israel in their last week in their last week that's been decreed to them, it's to bring them to such a desperate end that they will finally call on Jesus their Messiah. And as Paul says in the book of Romans, and thus all Israel will be saved. It's finally to bring the people of Israel into their, their necessary relationship with Jesus the Messiah. And since the church doesn't need to believe in Jesus and the church doesn't need to be judged for its unbelief like the nations, then we believe that this tribulation period here has nothing to do with the church and therefore being caught up out of the world, taken away, that that occurs prior to the tribulation. And if you want a theological term that you can hang on this, it's called pre-tribulationalism. Right? Everybody got that? So you can speak as a theologian this week. Pre-tribulationalism. Now some counter, some will counter and say that, well, we understand that, that, that this, we kind of agree with this perspective, except when we read the prophecies and the prophecies of Daniel and the prophecies of John uh, in the book of Revelation, we also understand that, well, really the first half of this seven-year period is really a time of peace. It's only in the middle that really the, the hellishness of tribulation breaks out. And there is a lot of merit to that. For instance, remember in Daniel chapter 7, it says that the Antichrist, the world ruler, is going to make war on the saints, and he will do it for a, if you remember me, for a time, times, and a half time. Time being one year, times being two years, and a half time, three and a half years. When you get into the book of Revelation, it says a number of times this same concept that the real, the real wrath of the tribulation breaks forth in the middle part of the week. It says that it breaks forth in 42 months. That's three and a half years in the book of Revelation. In Daniel chapter 9, 
when we talked about the 70 weeks, it says that this Antichrist, in the middle of the week, he cuts off the sacrifice and stuff and creates this abomination of desolation. So this pre-trib position has been modified by some and they come up with this particular position. They say that in the middle of this week, that's really when the rapture takes place. Not during these first three years of more subtleness and peacefulness that gives the Antichrist and his world ruler this power, but in the middle, there is this taken out of the church and then the real tribulation begins and that's called mid-tribulationalism. Right? And then finally, there are those who see the church just simply as going through the tribulation. That it's not really a time for the escape of the church. That only at the catastrophic end of the seven year period will the church be raptured away to meet Christ at His second coming. In fact, what post-tribulationalists believe is that the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ are just simply two aspects of one event. That this period of time towards the end of human history in which God is using the events to bring all humanity to a desperate conclusion, either to fall away in judgment or to reach out and be saved, that the church will be utilized through this whole time. And only at the end, when God brings His wrath to bear, being the rest of the time, just man bringing his own wrath to bear, but when God brings all of this to an end, only then will the church be taken out. So it's two aspects of one event. The church will go out and meet Jesus Christ as He comes to bring His kingdom to earth. And that's called post-tribulationalism. Now, why do we have today such dissenting views? Because it hadn't always been that way. In fact, I want you to be surprised at the fact that up until the 19th century, the church only held really basically one view. But in the 1800s, much of the controversy can be traced back to a theologian by the name of J.N. Darby. You might just write his name down just to remember. J.N. Darby. He was a brilliant man who in 1830 is a member of the Brethren Church in Scotland. Uh, after being influenced under some prophetic writings by other men like Edwin Irving and others, he set forth for him in no uncertain terms that the rapture would in fact occur before the tribulation. He was the first pre-tribulationalist. Now, in that day, in 1830, that was a revolutionary idea, but uh, Darby was very persuasive. He saw the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ as two separate events, separated by these seven years. He came to the continent of America seven times and went through the continent teaching about this new perspective in Scripture, and it was very persuasive. And many evangelicals were swept up into it and believed it, over a period of time, this particular perspective became embraced by many of the evangelical seminaries, many of which we've been influenced, I've been influenced, you've been influenced by. Dallas Theological Seminary, the seminary I graduated from, Western Theological Seminary, Talbot Theological Seminary, and others embraced this in the early 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then when you had the Jesus movement in the 60s, and so many were swept into it, including myself, we were naturally just brought on into believing that as well. It was just part and parcel with the theology that we have. And so for the last 40 years in particular, in evangelicalism, pre-tribulationalism has held the dominant position. But then that brings us to the question, who's right? Okay. Well, I'd like to go into a great detail of all the, the different aspects. You can't do that, so what I'm going to do is just take a closer look at the evidence in ways that will be helpful to you to do further research at four points between what I think are really the two most popular perspectives, the pre-tribulational side of which mid-trib brings the same evidence to bear, just, just moves it a little further, and the other extreme which we call post-tribulationalism. Let's look at the differences and the arguments for both. First of all, with pre-tribulationalists, what they do is they give great attention to the fact that in passages of Scripture, now listen very closely, in passages of Scripture that discuss the tribulation, the church is never mentioned. That's a pretty strong argument. When the, when the Scripture is talking about the tribulation, the church is never mentioned. And so the conclusion is if the church is never mentioned, it's simply because the church is not there. 
For instance, Dwight Pentecost at Dallas Seminary said this, every passage dealing with the tribulation will always relate to God's program with Israel, not the church. And that's true. It is a focus on Israel. And nowhere is that better seen if there are any students of the book of Revelation, you know that is in fact the case. If you open up the book of Revelation, for instance, and you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's all about the church. Everywhere is mentioned the church. But when you get to chapter 4, suddenly the church disappears. And by the time you get to chapter 6, John's now starting to speak of the end times and judgment and the tribulation. And from chapters 6 to 18, the church is never mentioned. It's only after all that is over and you get, you know, in verses nine, chapters 19 and towards the end, is the church suddenly, does it suddenly reappear? So the conclusion is, is that the church has been raptured. Now, post-tribulation, let's look at that from a different perspective. They will concede the point that the church is never mentioned in these tribulational passages, but they offer a different perspective as to why. It's not because the church isn't there, but for a post-tribulationalist, it's just the fact that the church is not the focus of the tribulation. Israel is the focus. And so according to post-tribulationalists, silence on the church during these times no more proves that the church is gone than does the fact that there's silence on America proves that America is not around. Just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean that we have disappeared. It just simply leaves the question open-ended. That brings us to a second comparison, and that is this. Post or pre-tribulationalists see that... Uh, the Scripture adamantly teaches that the church will escape the tribulation. For instance, don't take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Thessalonians for a minute. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and they would use a verse like this to say, this is a verse that in a sense proves that we won't go through the tribulation. Now there are others, but we're going to just focus on one. So for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and in 4 and 5, Paul is talking about last things and judgment and being taken out of the world, and all those kind of things. And we get to chapter 5, and look at verse 9. He says, For God, listen, for God has not destined us for wrath. Okay? There it is. He's not destined us for this tribulation, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we're going to live together with Him. He's not destined us for wrath. Well, the post-tribulationists would look at that and say, that's right, He hasn't destined us for wrath. But what you don't understand here is the context. Because the context in a post-tribulationalist mind is not dealing with, this passage is not dealing with tribulation, it's dealing with the wrath of God, and there's a difference. Look at verse 1, it says, of that same chapter, it says, Now as the time and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the post-tribulationalists will say, the day of the Lord. Is the day of the Lord the rapture? Or is the day of the Lord what theologians have thought it to be for 2,000 years? The second coming. And the post-tribulationalists will say, this passage is about the second coming. While they are saying, verse 3, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you believers, you church, are not in the darkness that this day will overtake you like a thief. In other words, you won't be overwhelmed with this day, but it won't be that you've escaped it. You'll just be aware of it. So the post-tribulationalist would look at this time period, and this is very important to hear this, it would see this seven-year period of time not as God's wrath. It would see this seven-year period of time as man's wrath on man. It's the monster of Daniel 7 inflicting his wrath. But the day of the Lord and the wrath of God only occurs right at the very end when God intervenes in human history and judges and puts His wrath on the situation to bring human history to a close, but not only His wrath, also His saving grace by taking His church away as He inflicts His wrath of judgment. So, so the post-tribulationists say, don't confuse the day of the Lord with the rapture. Keep the day of the Lord what it should be, the second coming of Jesus Christ. A third comparison would be this, that pre-tribulationalists say that for the church, Jesus could come back at any moment. You've probably heard that, haven't you? 
Jesus come back any moment. The reason we say that is because if we're not going to be in the seven-year tribulation period, then we could be taken out at any moment. There's no events leading up to us being taken out, so we don't need to be watchful. We don't necessarily need to be sober or checking the time because the fact is, before all this stuff starts unfolding, we will be gone. That the only people who need the signs of the second coming are those who go through the tribulation and Israel in particular. Because they'll need those signs. And Jews do need signs, the Scripture says. Well, the post-tribulationists will counter and say, if we don't need to know all these signs and be watchful, if we're going to be taken out and we could be taken out today, then why are so many passages of Scripture written to the church about these signs? And that you need to understand these signs. And that you need to be watchful in this time. Why were those Scriptures given to the church in the New Testament? Why weren't these comments instead reserved for the Old Testament? For instance, look over in Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Which was written to Gentiles, by the way. Luke chapter 21. You'll get kind of a feel for this when you you read these verses. We're going to pick it up at verse 25 as he's talking about the end times. And in verse 25, Luke writes these words, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, and men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And then he says, verse 28, and listen carefully, but when these things begin to take place, when all this tribulation and change starts happening, straighten up and lift up your heads Now who? Who is the your here? If the church is gone, who's the your? Straighten up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Look down at verse 34. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, it seems like the indication there as he speaks is encouragement to the church to stand firm during a desperate time. But those are not needed. These verses now need to be retranslated to stand just for Jewish people or people who become converted during the tribulation. That would be pre-tribulationalist understanding. And then a final evidence of pre-tribulationalism is just the use of typology. It's argued, and uh, I've heard it argued many times, that uh, things like Noah and the flood, remember Lot when he lived in Sodom and before Sodom was destroyed, that those images are really pictures of how God delivers us from tribulation. And they're pictures of really the church escaping God's wrath during this tribulation period. So for instance, with Noah, before the flood came, Noah was taken out through the ark. He didn't have to go through it. He wasn't destined for God's wrath. He was taken out. Or Lot, even though Lot was a very compromised Christian. And uh, in the the book of Peter, it talks about him being just oppressed with his own lust by having lived in that indulgent, decadent city. But nevertheless, even though he was a compromised believer, we know from the story that before Sodom was destroyed with fire, Lot was taken out. He escaped. All right? And so, by typology, the pre-tribulationalist would argue that that's exactly what's going to happen to the church. Whether we're compromised in Christ or whether we're a solid believer, we still get taken out, so we're not destined for this time of trouble. But the post-tribulationalists will use the same typologies and reason from their perspective that these same typologies speak to post-tribulationalism. For instance, Noah and Lot weren't taken out of the time before God's actual wrath fell. In other words, Lot had to endure the trouble of Sodom. And Noah had to endure the unfaithfulness of his world for years and years and years as he built his ark. He didn't escape all that problems, 
all the breakdown of society that was occurring. He went through man inflicting trouble on man, kind of like Antichrist and the world ruler will inflict trouble on the earth. It was only at the very end when God finally says, I've had enough. I'm going to destroy this. I'm going to bring judgment in a moment. It was at that last moment that Lot was taken out and Noah entered the ark and shut the door. Everybody see the point? Shake your head if you're with me. Okay, because I want to, I'm covering a lot of ground and some of you have not heard this kind of thing and you know, you're thinking, this guy's nuts. <laughs> He's up there babbling and they just need to take him off the stage and get him a drink of water. <laughs> I understand that. But you know, God has privileged us to peer into future things. And that's what we're doing. So those are the arguments. Now, there's all kinds of other technical fine points that we could bring to bear. And at some point, maybe in a Bible study, we'll have the privilege of doing that together. But, but the question is, so where do you stand in this debate? Well, I'm only going to speak for myself here this morning. And I've said this to the church years ago. But when you look at all the evidence for me, I tend to lean, not with absolute certainty, but I lean to post-tribulationalism. That's where I would find myself feeling that that's the best, most natural interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to give you three reasons why I would lean that direction. Here's the first one. Pre-tribulationalism seems to be a more natural fit with just simply the flow of Scripture. Just the natural reading of Scripture. I always get nervous um, with people when they're starting to say, no, this really means this. It doesn't mean what it just seems to naturally appear. And, and, and sometimes, even as a seminarian, I felt like we were forcing a pre-trib rapture on the Scripture. As I mentioned, we start making the coming of the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord. We say, no, the day of the Lord isn't the second coming. The day of the Lord is the rapture of the church. And I start feeling like we're beginning to twist there. For instance, I want to look again, without you turning there, let's look back at 1 Thessalonians and, and I'll show you what, what I mean. He says, for this we save you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Now, in my mind, the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead and stuff from just the rest of Scripture. When you see the word coming of the Lord, do you think of rapture or second coming? See, there's a tendency for us just on a natural reading is to think of that as the second coming. And then he goes on, for the Lord will descend from heaven. And that's what we see with Jesus Christ coming back at his second coming. There's a shout. There's, you know, there's all those mentions of trumpets or whatever, kind of like this big crescendo to human history. And those are figures of speech, but they will be something very clear. And then the dead in Christ are going to rise. And then, and then, and then, we who are alive, if we're still alive then, will be caught up, will be raptured at that second coming. Now, we simply are caught up in that moment of grandeur to then continue to descend to planet earth to impose God's kingdom on earth, which brings about the new kingdom, the millennial kingdom that we'll talk about in some later messages. But that all seems to be one event, doesn't it? Seems to kind of fall together. At least it does for me. But to suddenly say that we who are caught up down here in these latter verses, that really that happened seven years before the second coming, that seems like we're adding something. And I, I say that just simply because it's felt strained to me. Now I'm going to leave that verse on the screen because I want to compare that to Matthew's discourse, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and have you turn there. Because I want you to remember as you turn there, I want you to remember about Jesus being caught up in the clouds, the trumpets, the angels, and those symbols that you see in the first Thessalonians passage. And I want you to turn to Matthew 24. Because in Matthew 24 is where Jesus gives the account of the end times. He stunned His disciples. He took them up on the Mount of Olives and then told them how the end was going to come. And you can read this later this week, maybe in your private studies, but starting in verse 3, as He sits there, He starts telling them about the end of history. See that verse 3? And He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Disciples came to Him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your second coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in My name saying, I'm the Christ, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be frightened, for those things much take place. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and so on and so forth. He says, 
And he goes on, he says, but this is just going to be the beginning. And then he starts moving from those things that will be kind of warm up to the tribulation to the tribulation experience itself. Look at verse 15. This accords with the book of Daniel. But listen, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and that'll happen right in the middle of this week. Just as Daniel the prophet said, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out of his house. In other words, don't do anything. This is it. This is the tribulation. And look at verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. I want you to know that. This is it. And now I want you to notice as he goes on and describes this tribulation and he then goes to the end of the tribulation. Now we're at the end of the tribulation. Look at verse 29 when you get to verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation, that's at the end of the tribulation, right? Pretty clear. At the end of the tribulation, immediately after those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Okay, so now He's in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll go, oh no, He really exists. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That's like 1 Thessalonians. With power and great glory. And He'll send forth His angels. That's in 1 Thessalonians. With a great trumpet. That's in 1 Thessalonians. And those angels will gather together His elect from the four winds. That's in 1 Thessalonians. The dead and those who remain, they'll all be gathered up in the clouds from one end of the sky to the other. And all that will happen at the end of the tribulation. And then after the tribulation, you know, after you have all that tribulation, then notice in verses 29 to 31, you have that rapture because verse 31 speaks of that rapture. At the great trumpet, like in 1 Thessalonians, everybody's going to be gathered together in the clouds to meet Him in the clouds in order to participate in His kingly reign as He comes immediately back to earth to set up a kingdom that will occur after this moment. But it will be a different kingdom. This, this era of human history comes to a close. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, you know, a final reason I would give is just simply that post-tribulationalism, now listen very carefully, post-tribulationalism was the dominant view of the church for almost 1,800 years. And in particular, the early church in the first 300 years. I want to just read a couple of church fathers for you. For instance, Justin Martyr, who was a famous church father, said it this way, the man of apostasy, that is Antichrist, Martyr said, shall venture to do unlawful deeds on the earth against us, the Christians. He saw that the Antichrist's wrath would fall on Christians, not just Israel. Barnabas, in his epistle, which was an apocalyptic kind of epistle after the close of the New Testament, he wrote this. He said, the final stumbling block approaches Antichrist. We take earnest heed in these last days for, for so take earnest heed in these last days, for your faith will profit you nothing unless you also withstand these coming sources of danger as becometh children of God. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle, he said this, and the ten kings shall give their kingdom to the beast. Now, isn't that interesting? We're going back now almost 2,000 years. Here's Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the apostle, who wrote the Revelation. And he's speaking as crazy as I'm speaking today about ten kings and a beast. But he says, and the ten kings shall give their kingdom to the beast and will put the church to flight. You know, when a great persecution broke out on the church in 303 A.D. under the Roman emperor Diocletian, it was a fierce persecution. Christians were rounded up and burned at the stake in droves. But during that persecution, it was the general consensus of the church fathers at that time that the great tribulation on the world and on the church had finally arrived. Roman ruler, persecuted church, this is it. Now those would be just some of my reasonings for leaning in that direction. 
So if post-tribulational is correct, and I want you to know as I say that, that's where I lean. I'm not going to ever be dogmatic. The other guys lean in different positions all along that spectrum. But the reason I tell you that today is because although we should be aware of what's coming, it's important for us that we do not harangue and become arrogant and dogmatic, and we need to be very, very careful not to exaggerate our position and create all kinds of exaggerated kind of thoughts that then turn off a non-believing world. And I want you to know, one of the things that I have cringed under is when we talk about the church leaving and man, we escape, he, 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 and all of you else have to go through hell. I'm telling you, there is nothing that turns off the unbelieving world more than that. That haughty, arrogant position. Now, if the church is raptured before the tribulation, you won't see anything but a smile on my face. <laughs> All right? When I meet you there. And I'll be more than grateful to say I was wrong. Please forgive me. But I want you to know I want us to hold this with real humility. Now, I want to give you just to conclude here some certainties, even if this position is correct. Let's just say we will go through the tribulation. Three things I just want to leave you with before we pray. It would be this. You can be certain, even if the church goes through the tribulation, that the fury of the tri tribulation will not destroy the church. If human history tells us anything, it's when believers are put under an intense time of persecution, the church grows stronger. It grows stronger. Because in its desperateness, it reaches out to the God of glory and finds strength and power. Second thing you can be certain of is that God will use the tribulation like He's used any time of trouble. He'll use it to purify His church. I hate to say this about my own life, but I can say it about the life of Christians and the church in general through human history, and that is this. Sometimes pain is the only way to bring us back into perspective. And today's church worldwide is generally disbelieving, soft, and sagging in its Christian lifestyle. And that's why if you want to read anything in Revelation, just read chapter 3, where John is listing these seven churches, and as he gets to the last few churches, the mark of those last churches is their incredible moral compromise. They've left their first love, John says. You've, you, you, you've taken up gold and power and stuff, but you've not bought purity from me. And so, if that's true, towards the end, if a large part of the church is unbelieving, even as it acknowledges belief, maybe persecution in this time has a real purpose for the church as well as for saving Israel. Because at some point, you've got to know that prosperity is not going to save you. And that your sagging moral compromises is hurting your eternal future. And God can graciously sometimes inject pain to help you become desperate again. But you can know for certain that a tribulation will purify the church. And then finally, I just let you know this, that you can be certain that if we go through the tribulation, the church will know the approximate time of Christ's coming. Now, we will not know the day or the hour, the exact moment. It's the day of the Lord. And not even Jesus Christ knows the day of His second coming. At least while He was on earth, He didn't. He said it. But on the other hand, there are so many Scriptures that say we will know the time. Remember when I read in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, but you, brethren, it'll overtake the world like a thief in the night, but you, brethren, if you're sober and alert, it won't overtake you like a thief in the night. You'll have some understanding. If you're taught correctly the Scriptures, what will happen is we will move through this period of time and you will begin to see these things set up just as some pastor years before encouraged you to think about. And in those desperate times and hours, you'll reach out to Jesus Christ and you'll be mindful for what's going on and you'll understand this is the season. This is it. But even though hell is breaking out on earth, rather than the church being discouraged during that time, the church will become more expectant and more radical because it's been taught sound doctrine. And with every passing historical event in that last epoch of time, the church will become more excited, not more discouraged if it understands these Scriptures correctly. 
And it will know that in a moment, as it stays faithful in the midst of that hot breath of the final time, it will know that in a moment, all of this will collapse into a glorious conclusion for those who really believe. And Paul told us that glorious conclusion. He said when the world is collapsing in on itself in utter chaos, at just that moment when the world has absolutely no hope, that's when he writes these words, then we who are alive shall be caught up together with the dead in Christ into the clouds to meet our Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he concludes, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in good times and in bad you were there. We thank You as we heard today in the baptism, when we are faithless, You wait our return graciously. We are thankful that no matter how much we have squandered our life, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the fresh start. Today is a new day. And Father, how we thank You for that. And how we thank You that we know the end. We know how human history wraps up. We don't know all the surprises after that in glory. But if this life is anything as a hint to the next life, we are in for some fabulous surprises. And we thank You that though we believe these things that to an unbelieving world would sound so ridiculous, they also see as ridiculous that a human heart can be saved. And yet we've experienced that. And we're the beneficiaries of that new life right now. And so we trust and we affirm today this doctrine called the rapture that one day as life comes to an end as we know it, we will be caught up to be with You. And thus we shall always forever and ever and ever enjoy our relationship with You, our Father, our Lover, our Comforter, our Friend. We thank You for that, Lord Jesus. For those truths and those reminders. Help us now in light of that future to walk faithfully with You this week knowing the end for which we are headed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.